We are working our way through the um, Bali Hamasera, as we call them, the masters of the oral tradition. Um, today is, I think, lesson four, right? Okay. Um, and basically, we discussed that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu receives the uh, Ten Commandments, the Luchais, and then he writes the five books of Moshe. And then we have subsequently the 19 books of prophets and writings that comprise the 24 books of the Tanakh. But aside from that, we have all of the Torah Shabbat, which is all of the halachas and all the details that Hashem taught to Moshe um, when Moshe was on Sinai. And Moshe continued teaching the Jewish people throughout the 40 years that they were in the desert. That huge body of the oral tradition is being passed down from generation to generation, orally. It's not being yet put into book form. We discussed people took notes privately, but as far as book form, it was not put in for many, many years, uh, well over a thousand years, close to 1,500 years. And what we've been following is the Rambam who gives us the step-by-step who were the masters who were in charge, who were entrusted in seeing to it that the Torah is passed down from generation to generation and to keep the, um, the truth of the Torah whenever questions arose, whenever there's you know, what I thought, what I didn't think. So there's always one person who was in charge who was entrusted by the Nasi or the leader or the Rebbe before him um, in passing on that Torah. And the Rambam's list um, numbers 40 people. And those 40 people are the, the um, chain from Moshe Rabbeinu until the writing of Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, um, which is written by Ravina and Ravashi. I mean, it's really a compilation of the writings of many, many sages. But the ones who ultimately put it together were Ravina and Ravashi. Um, and that becomes the final book that becomes the binding book, so to speak, for all Klal Yisrael when it comes to the oral tradition. But I guess it's never enough. There's always commentaries and Oh, commentaries yeah, because yeah. that's the nature of Torah. Torah is divine wisdom and therefore is infinite. And therefore it keeps on going. And till today there's people learning and writing and suggesting. But whatever someone writes or suggests today doesn't have that binding nature for all of Klal Yisrael like Talmud Babel. So the Rambam... He um, traces 40 generations, or 40 masters of transmission of Torah. Again, from Moshe Rabbeinu till the Talmud Bavli. Rambam himself is a good five, 600 years after Talmud Bavli. We have to get to that as well. But meanwhile, we've been using that um, Rambam's master list and looking at the chains in the tradition. And we covered 20, right? 20 out of the 40. So is now the time for the test for all 20. <laughs> Um, okay, I'll uh, leave, we'll leave it for another week. Uh, I'm just very quickly going to say the names. We discussed each and every one of them, but very quickly, just as a backdrop here. So, of course, it starts with Moshe Rabbeinu. And by the way, I have it written down. It's not memory. Um, uh, it starts from Moshe Rabbeinu, who receives it from Hashem. So he's one. Moshe passes it on to Yehoshua. Right? That's famous. That's in the Chumash, actually, that Moshe anoints Yehoshua. So Yehoshua is number two. Number three in the chain is Pinchas. Pinchas is a grandson of, Moshe, of Aaron HaKoyin. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron. And he learned from Torah, but, from Moshe, but ultimately received the leadership from Yehoshua. And Pinchas, we discussed, lived a long time. And after him, the next uh, name is Eli HaKoyin. Eli HaKoyin, who's um, very famously connected with Shiloh, with the Mishkan that was in Shiloh in Israel. He's the one who gave the bracha that Shmuel be born um, and plays a great role in the beginning of Tanakh. So he's number four. Number five was Shmuel. 
Shmuel HaNavi, one of the earliest and greatest Nevi'im of Klal Yisrael, the one who anointed the first two kings of Klal Yisrael, Shaul and David. That was Shmuel HaNavi's number five. Number six, David HaMelech, who wasn't only a king, but much more than a king, was a great Torah teacher um, and was the spiritual leader of the Jewish people in his time. Number seven, Achia HaShiloni, one of the prophets, one of the great prophets that Tanakh talks about, um, and someone who shows up much later in spiritual ways as well, which we will not go into here. Number eight, perhaps the most famous of all prophets that we have, Eliyahu HaNavi. Eliyahu HaNavi, the disciple of Achia HaShiloni, is number eight of that list of the oral tradition. Number nine was Eliyahu HaNavi's great disciple and successor, Elisha. Elisha, who's again discussed at great length in Tanakh, uh, especially very uh, great miracle worker, many different types of miracles, as, ex- as expounded on in Tanakh. Number 10, Yehoyada HaKohen. He was a Kohen Gadol. Um, again, lesser fa- famous perhaps than some of the other names that we have here. But for the student of Tanakh, definitely discussed, definitely um, in very important places, plays a, a very important role for Klal Yisrael. So he was number 10 in that list. Okay. Um, we continued on to the next 10. So was the was Zechariah. Um, not the Zechariah that people typically think, which is much later. Um, rather, we're talking about Zechariah, who was also a Kohen Gadol. He was the son of the previous one, of Yehoyada. Um, Zechariah, Zechariah was killed, tragically, in the Beis HaMikdash. But he is number 11. Number 12 is Hosea ben Ela. Um, I'm sorry, Hosea ben Be'eri. I confused him with a different person. Hosea ben Be'eri, one of the Tre'asar. Um, we talked about a number of these people are going to be in the, in the book that has 12 short prophets. So Hosea is number 12. Number 13 is Amos, another one of the Tre'asar, another prophet. Number 14 was a much more famous prophet, and that's Yeshayahu. Uh, many of the Haftorahs that we say on Shabbos are taken from the books of Yeshayahu, the prophecies, prophecies of Yeshayahu. Yeshayahu was known as the prophet of redemption, always prophesizing the Geula, the redemption, um, and one of the greatest Nevi'im. So Yeshayahu was number 14. Number 15, we have the Navi Micha, um, from the tribe of Yehuda. Number 16 was the Navi Yoel. Um, we discussed last week in Yoel there was this great um, the plague of locusts, one of the greatest in history. Um, in 17, we have Nahum, another of the Nevi'im of the time. Um, 18 was Chavakuk. Um, we discussed interestingly from the Zohar. According to some opinions, um, Chavakuk. Uh, the Zohar says he was the, he was the one that Elisha revived. Again, we discussed that story last week. Number 19 is Tsefania, another one of the Nevi'im, one of the, uh, late, one of the last Nevi'im. And number 20, which is what we reached last week, is Yirmiyahu Hanavi. And that's still where we reached. Yirmiyahu um, is famously known as the Navi. Thank you. The Navi of the Khurban, the Navi who prophesies the destruction more than any other Navi. He's the most associated with the Khurban. Um, Yirmiyahu was a Kohen, as were many of the Nevi'im. Um, 
Yirmiyahu, as I said, prophesied the destruction, saw the destruction, lived the destruction, um, wanted to go out with the um, exiles of the Jewish people, but Hashem called him back to Yerushalayim. Um, and ultimately he passes away there. But that's Yirmiyahu, who is, again, the prophet, the prophet of the destruction of the first base of Mikdash, and he is number 20 in our chain, and that's where we finished last week. So we'll move on to number 21. Yirmiyahu's great Talmud, his great disciple and successor, is a Navi by the name of Baruch ben Neiria. Baruch ben Neiria. In the book of Yirmiyahu and in the story of Yirmiyahu, Baruch is mentioned numerous times. It's just like Moshe and Yoshua, or just like Eliyahu and Elisha. You have Yirmiyahu and Baruch. Um, so he was Yirmiyahu's right hand. Again, in many of Yirmiyahu's prophecies, he plays an important role. Um, and he, when Yirmiyahu passes away, he becomes the next Rebbe, the next teacher, the next leader, um, and the one who's entrusted with teaching Torah in a very difficult time because this is just after the destruction of the first Beis Hamikdash. So this is in that era called Golus Bavel. Right, the first base of Mikdash was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, Babylon, and the Jews were um, exiled to Babylon, to Babel. Now, the Babylonian exile wasn't terrible in certain ways. The Jews um, thrived in Babel, but it was under very uh, wicked and vicious leaders. Um, so they were out of Israel for the first time in close to close to a thousand years. Um, and in Bavel is where Baruch Beneria was the recognized leader of the Jewish people in that time, um, during that Golos. Um, that Golos became, uh, it was a very tumultuous time in the history of the world because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Bavel, destroys the Besamikdash. But ultimately, in that 70 period, year period, not only is Nebuchadnezzar going to die, but there's going to be major wars and the Babylonians are going to lose the leadership. And they're going to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, taken over. It's got to be a better word than that. Overthrown by the Persians. Um, Daryavesh and Koresh, and that's the whole story. I think we discussed it probably in a Purim share, went through the history of that time. I don't want to do it again today. But within that 70-year period, the whole leadership is going to change. The political leadership is going to change from the Babylonians to the Persians. And the story of Hanuk, the story of Purim is going to happen during that time as well. But throughout this time, the one who is the Torah teacher is Baruch Ben Neriah, which is interesting because, for instance, in the Megillah Esther, he's not mentioned. He said Ben what? Neriah. Neriah. Yes, Nun Resh Yudhe Baruch Ben Neriah. So it's interesting because, like, you have the story of Purim, and everyone knows about Mordechai, and everyone knows about Esther and what was going on during the story, and you don't know that there was also a great Torah teacher at that time that somehow remained outside of the whole picture. Mordechai took over. Yeah, because Mordechai was connected with the palace. Mordechai had the political connections. Mordechai was obviously a tremendous tzaddik, but Mordechai wasn't the leader of the Sanhedrin. The leader was Baruch, Baruch Ben-Iria. So, and it's, so it's interesting to note, because sometimes in history you have different angles, depending on which angle you're looking at it from, different people are the main players. Right, so for example, in this story of the of the forty generations of transmission of Torah, Mordechai is not mentioned. So he was the hero of the Jewish people in the Purim story, and 
Perhaps spiritually he was on a greater level. I don't know. I'm not one to judge spiritual levels. But in, in the story of transmission of Torah, Mordechai is not part of that story. So Mordechai followed um, this Barah? I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Mordechai was part of the Sanhedrin, but Sanhedrin was 70 people. Mordechai was not the Rosha Sanhedrin. He was not the head of the Sanhedrin. So he was part of the Sanhedrin. And again, Mordechai was the one who was a minister in the king's palace. And Mordechai was the one who Esther was his niece, or wife, whatever. Um, so the story of Purim was more important not to know who was the head of the Sanhedrin, but who was the one who was in the palace, and who was the one who has Esther's connection, and who was the one who connected them to Achashverosh. And so the, in the Megillah's Esther, you don't even know that someone named Baruch exists. I thought the Sanhedrin couldn't function outside of Eretz Well, it functioned as a rabbinical court. It didn't have the same powers outside of Eretz For example, uh, to make Rosh Chodesh or something like that, you'd have to be in Eretz Yisrael, but rabbinical courts are rabbinical courts. Um, there was always rabbinical court. Um, even now there's rabbinical courts to a certain degree, not the same like the Sanhedrin, but um, you're correct that there are certain powers that they don't have outside of Eretz Yisrael, but definitely there was a Sanhedrin. Okay, so Baruch ben again, is that Talmud of Yirmiyahu. He is the disciple and successor to Yirmiyahu and the leader of the teaching of Torah during Gol- Golos Baba. Okay, he's number 21. Which brings us to number 22. Number 22 is definitely one of the most famous and most significant leaders of Klal Yisrael and one of the most significant people in this chain, and that is Ezra. Ezra, who's called Ezra HaKohen, he's called Ezra HaSofer, Ezra the scribe, we'll see why. Um, and he is the disciple of Baruch ben Neriah. He is the successor to Baruch ben Neriah. And he is most famous for his position as the head of the Anshei Knesset Hagdola, a very important part of our whole picture here. We've discussed in the past the Anshei Knesset Hagdola, loosely translated, the men of the great assembly. That was a body of rabbis. Amongst them, many were prophets. Um, And they were the ones who really led the Jewish people from destruction in the, the period of Golos Bavel into the period of the building of the second Beis HaMikdash. So coming back to Eretz Yisrael. Um, and we'll, we'll discuss them more in a moment, but the, the one who headed that undisputed leader of that group was Ezra HaSofer, Ezra the scribe. So Ezra was in Bavel. And he is studying Torah from his teacher, his Rebbe, his mentor, Baruch, Baruch ben Now, I mentioned that the tides have changed politically. The Babylonians are no more. There is Nebuchadnezzar is killed together with his descendants. Now the Persians are in charge. Now, once the Persians are in charge, we have already the seeds of the building of the second Beis HaMikdash are planted. Um, the first Persian king um, that overthrew the Babylonians was Daryavish, Darius I. But he ruled a very short time. Um, after that, his son-in-law, Koresh, Cyrus, ruled. Cyrus gave permission to build the second base on Miklish. And a number of Jews went up and started building. But Cyrus dies, and... Esther's son. No, no, not, not there yet. We'll see in a moment. No, oh, not there yet. No. Okay, no, 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 you'll see in a second. Uh, K- Koresh is the son-in-law of Daryavish I. Okay? 
He gives permission to build the first base of Mikdash. Many Jews go up and start building. Koresh dies and his son is Achashverosh. Achashverosh halts the building of the first base of Mikdash. That's the background to the story of Megillah's Esther. That, or the story of Purim. Achashverosh, because of the advice of our good friend Haman, really, um, and his wife, they halt the building of the first base of Mikdash. So everything stops. Um, it's only after the Purim story, when, and after Achashverosh dies, and his son, and this is the son of Achashverosh and Esther, and that's Daryavish the second, he's the one who gives permission for the building of the, of the second base of Mikdash. Now, the Jews go up to build the first base, the first base of Mikdash. And here's a part of the story that many people don't know. One person doesn't go up. Who, of all people, not to go up to build the first base of Mikdash? Ezra. You mean the second? The second. The second I'm sorry, of course, the second. Have I been saying the first the whole time? No. No, the second. Yeah, yeah. Okay, of course the second. The second. So Ezra, who's really the leader, or going to be the leader of the Jewish people, doesn't go up. Even though permission is granted, why didn't Ezra go up? The answer is because his Rebbe was still alive, Baruch ben and he was too old and frail to travel back to Eretz Yisrael. And Ezra, although he's the leader, well, really his Rebbe is the leader, but he's the Rebbe. The Rebbe is very old. And although the Jews are going back to Belibus Amikta, she says, as long as my Rebbe is here, I'm here. And it's only, and therefore the building doesn't really take off. And they start. And only when Baruch Beneria passes away in Bavel, that's when Ezra goes up to Eretz Yisrael, and that's when the second Mesamikdash really gets, gets built. And that's when he founds the Anshik Nessus Um Chazal say about Ezra tremendous things. Like, for example, I'm just reading a quote. It says, the Gemara says, that Ezra was worthy that the Torah should be given through him if Moshe had not preceded him. So Chazal see Ezra in this, in this greatest of, 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 uh, of, of levels. Um, and he, um, again, so he leads the building of the second Mesa Mikdash, founds that um, rabbinic group of 120 rabbis, which is unusual, because normally our Sanhedrin is always 70 rabbis. And this time he gathered everyone, all 120, and made this... Um, uh, highest authority of the Jewish people at the time. It's not clear to me why he made 120, but it's not just not clear to me. It's, it's, a, it's a question of historians. It's still the yeah, it was this, there was no other Sanhedrin. That was the high court, but whereas typically the high court was always 70 people, that Knesset was 120 people. Um, and it included within it a number of prophets. Um, people like Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, who are considered the last prophets of the era of prophecy. Uh, Nehemiah, Mordechai joined that group. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, famous names. None of them in our list, by the way. All those names I just mentioned, all prophets, not in the list of ultimate Torah transmitters, but they were all part of this high court of the Anshik Nessus Hagdola. Um, they instituted many institutions, that are the basic fabric of Yiddishkeit as we know it today. Most notably, something that we all connect to every single day, is all davenings and all brachos, they wrote. So there was always the concept of praying to Hashem. The praying was from the heart, what you wanted to say and when you wanted to say. 
They created something called Shachris and Mincha and Musaf and Mayriv. They created a concept of saying Shmona Esrei, 18 blessings, and the order of the 18 blessings. They gave us the Brachas, uh, you know, Bori Priya Eitz or or Bori Priya Adam or Hamosi Lachmanaris or Asher Yatsar or any Bracha that we make. They wrote our Siddur for all practical purposes. I mean, of course, there are parts of our Siddur that are selections of the Hillim. They didn't write the Tehillim. The Tehillim is way before. But the basic uh, fabric of the obligation of davening and how to daven, that comes from them. Um, the concept that in Shul, we read from the Torah on Monday morning and on Thursday morning. And Shabbos by Mincha, that comes from them as well. The Shabbos Torah reading, that's earlier. It's from Moshe Rabbeinu. But the idea of doing it Monday morning and Thursday morning and, and Shabbos Mincha, that also comes from the Anshik Nasus Hagdola. And they created other such great um, institutions for Klal Yisrael. And that was all headed by Ezra. So although it had tremendous, many great tzaddikim, it was Ezra who stood as the clear and very undisputed leader. Nehemiah was his second in command, but Ezra was the leader. Wait, so before that, did they have organized davening no. in the Beis HaMikdash or no. anything like that? No. Before that, in other words, in the time of the first Beis HaMikdash, there was karbonos, and there was not organized davening. It's important to say, again, Yidin always daven, Avram Avinu daven, Yitzchak daven, Yaakov daven, and people always daven, but not in an organized, not in a formulated way. That begins with, the, with them, which is the beginning of the second Beis HaMikdash, which, which is interesting to note, because a lot of people don't know this, that throughout the entire second Beis HaMikdash, there was organized davening. So even though they were bringing karbonos in the Beis HaMikdash, they were also davening Shimon Asrei. And that's something that a lot of people find surprising because they think, well, we daven because we don't have karbonos. And there's perhaps some truth to that statement, but definitely not fully true because the fact is that the 18 brachos were instituted by the people who built the second Beis HaMikdash, which means that for the subsequent 420 years of the second Beis HaMikdash, we were davening. Um, so that's Do you just... think it would replace the thing that the second Beis HaMikdash didn't have that the first one had? I'm sorry? Do you think that it was possible to replace the things that the first pilgrimage didn't have? So they maybe substituted that for that? I mean, I, good point. I don't know. I, I never saw that mentioned. Mm-hmm. What's written, what Rambam writes is, people were on a lesser level, people didn't know how to express themselves properly to Hashem, even language was an issue. Whereas until this point, Hebrew was the language of the Jewish people. But once we were in Bavel for 70 years, we became, you know, it's like today. What's the main language of the Jewish people? Whatever, wherever you are, depends. English, English here, English here, and French in France, and then, and you know, keep on going. Russian somewhere else. You know, I was sitting last night um, by the Kinnas Ashluchim, and there was people from a hundred different countries sitting there. There was every language you know in the world was there. So, and that's so. There's no language of the Jewish people. So, of course, Hebrew is the holiest of languages, but it could be the holiest, but it's still not the way that people know how to express themselves best. People express themselves best in the language that they know. So if there wasn't any, you know, organized davening, so everyone was doing their own thing, really. And that's why they wrote that one organized davening for Klal Yisrael. Why is that a problem, though, if let's say everyone <coughs> davens in their own language? So that's a great question. And that, obviously, is a big topic of discussion. But in very short, um, of course, everyone c- can and does express themselves to Hashem in the way that they know best. But we're talking here about Sadiqim. Um, and Nevi'im, who were able to give us the proper and best keys how to reach Hashem, and how to express, and what's right to ask for, and how is it right to ask. 
So, of course, that never person can always express themselves. But the um, all the Kabbalistic intentions in davening, and knowing the different parts, you know, the different names of Hashem, and therefore what name is most key in order to accomplish something, and what's the proper way to approach a king. Um, so they knew a lot more than us, and we were able to, the more we learned davening, and that's what we did the last couple of years over here, the more we see how much kavana they put into every line, that we would never be able to think of all those kavanas um, in just our personal expression. But that you could, but you could daven in English or Russian or Spanish from the sitter though. You could, right? you could, because you're following exactly what they, what they wrote. It's in a different language. Even so, if one is able to learn it in Hebrew, it is, it is more special. It is, it is Lashon HaKodesh. Um, so if I don't understand the Hebrew at all, and it's more meaningful if I follow the sitter in English, then that's what I should do. But it's something to work on to be able to say at least some of the main brachas or tefillahs in, in Lashon HaKodesh as well, because at the end of the day, that does have a certain kedusha that nothing else does. I just don't like, I mean, I'm Kippur for the Avoda. A lot of the times I read it in English, really to understand it better. And, um... Oh, for sure. That means cl- clearly, I, I clearly. Now I, I would I would do the same, but I don't know the chazanas in English. <laughs> Not to finish off the uh, some special tunes for that. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, that so that's the story of the Anshik Nesagdola. Now, from. And so that so the head of the Ashkenazi was Ezra, and he's number twenty-two on our list, right? Um, let me. I want to say something that's perhaps not important for this um, for this subject, but just a very beautiful thing that I once read. I may have shared, shared here once a number of years ago, but I found it very beautiful, and that is Ezra, who is this great leader of the Jewish people, um, the one who leads us back to Eretz Yisrael to build the second base on Mikdash, is buried. Somewhere in either Iraq or Iran. Till today. And it's actually a shrine by the Muslims as well. There's a name for it in Arabic, which I don't remember what it is. And they go there, and it's a holy place, a holy site. And the question is, what's he doing there? After all, he led the Jewish people to Israel. And he was very adamant about the Jewish people even coming to Israel. In fact, um, interestingly, historically, most Jewish people didn't go back to Israel in the time of the first Beis HaMikdash. The second, second Beis HaMikdash, I'm sorry again. Um, most Jewish people stayed in Babel, in Babylon. In fact, the Babylonian Talmud is Babylonian, right? hence the name. Um, B- Babylon remained the seat of the Jewish people for over a thousand years. So, and this was something that Ezra was very upset about. Ezra felt that the Jewish people should come back to Israel. To the, to the second Mesa Mikdash. And for reasons that are not perfectly clear, m- the majority of the Jewish people didn't follow Ezra. I mean, they, they accepted him as a leader, but didn't follow him to Israel. Um, the most simple explanation is because, you have to understand, the second Mesa Mikdash wasn't such an exciting place or time. The Jewish people weren't independent. We, the, the Persians gave us permission to build a house of worship, but it was a very far cry from the first Mesa Mikdash which we built, our own king, our own independence, the Shlomo Melech, and so on. The Gemara says that the elders who were around when the second Beis HaMikdash was built were crying. They said, you know, this is a Beis HaMikdash? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the real thing. It wasn't... Although the second Beis HaMikdash was built, no one perceived this as the ultimate Geula. Because it was, very, it was a very incomplete type of Geula. And throughout the second Beis HaMikdash, there was constant persecution. It's the whole story of Hanukkah. 
So, but for whatever, whatever reason, the fact is, most Jewish people didn't go with Ezra. Ezra was upset. Ezra even um, gave different punishments. Like to the Levim who didn't come, he forbade them from taking Miser. He was, Ezra was strict about it. So all of that exacerbates the question that if Ezra is buried outside of Israel, that means he was outside of Israel. What was he doing there? If he was the great leader that brought us to Israel. <clears throat> so there is an interesting tradition that's written in Sfarim. I don't remember now the first Sefer where that's quoted, but it's, it's an old tradition. It says the following, that Ezra traveled to Yemen and he went there in order to talk to the Jews to come to Israel. And the Jews of Yemen said, they don't want to come. So according to this tradition, Ezra cursed them. And he said that you should never find wealth and prosperity in Yemen. Now, they didn't take this sitting down, and they cursed him that he shouldn't make it back to Israel. And he passed away on the way back. And that's why he's buried outside of Israel. That's the tradition. Now, that's a very tough story. On both sides. Why is Ezra cursing? I mean, they didn't come, but they cursed the Jewish people. And historically, the Jews in Yemen were always poor. Always. Till they came to Israel, you know, if, if it's 60 years ago, yeah, Yemenite Jewry. Yeah, yeah, but they, they came poor, they were always poor, which really connects with this story, with this tradition, that that was Ezra's curse. So Ezra curses the Jewish people of Yemen. They curse him. What's, you know, what's behind this story? So I once saw an explanation, you know, I don't know the authority of this explanation, but a beautiful explanation. And that is, the Jews from Yemen said, we don't want to go to Israel. We want to, it's not the time of Mashiach yet, it's not the time of Gula yet, we want to go when it's the real thing. So when Ezra said they shouldn't become wealthy, they shouldn't become prosperous, what he was really saying is that he didn't want them to become, I'm sorry? Comfortable too comfortable in Golos. They should always remember, okay, you don't want to come now, you want to wait for Mashiach, fine. But you should never be in a situation where you become affluent and you forget about going back altogether, that Yemen becomes your homeland. You should always know that you're in Yemen, you're, you're only traveling. You're only waiting in order for Mashiach to come, in order for the time. And that was his curse slash bracha, that they should never become too comfortable in Golos. <clears throat> too comfortable. If you want to stay is one thing, but always remember this is not your home. Never to be so comfortable here that, why should I go anywhere else? I'm good over here. And according to that, when they cursed him back and they said that he should pass away outside of Israel, they were saying, in order for us to remain in Golos, remain outside of Israel, and keep strong with our ruchnius, with our spirituality, we need the schus of the great tzaddik outside of Israel with us. Because when the tzaddik is buried outside of Israel, that alone enables the people there to remain connected and to remain you know, spiritually connected so that they don't get lost, so to speak, in exile. So this double curse from um, Ezra to the people and the people back to Ezra wasn't just about people being upset at each other, but it was all strengthening each other. He was giving them the strength to never become comfortable in exile and have always the desire and the yearning to come back. And they were evoking or, or, or creating that he should remain with them in some degree. And interestingly, <clears throat> the rabbi talked about this. He said that's why Yosef Atzadik, for example, was buried in Mitzrayim. Not like Yaakov who went back to Israel because if the Jews were going to be in Mitzrayim, they needed their tzaddik there with them. 
And the Rebbe says that's why the previous Rebbe was buried outside in America, not, not you know, to go to Israel, to be with his Hasidim and, and give them their Kedusha, the inspiration that they need to keep them strong in Golas until Mashiach will come. So all this sort of fits in to that tradition about Ezra and the Jewish people of his time. There's something, a, a beautiful idea there, so. So Ezra's buried? Um, so I don't remember today if it's Iraq or Iran, but one of those places. It's, I was on the way back somehow when he was doing his travels after Yemen back to Israel, and that's where he is. <clears throat> but it's definitely a, a place that's celebrated today by non-Jews who, who are prim, prim, primarily live there, and Jews come there from time to time. In fact, Ezra's yard site is Asara Batavis, which is a fast day. Mm. Right? And in fact, we even we mention it in the Slichas of Asar Batevis, Um because it's seen as one of the, you know, Ezra is again this great leader of the Jewish people. He passed away in Asar Batevis. It sort of fits in with destruction and Asar Batevis. If I'm not mistaken, Nehemiah passed away on the 9th and him on, and Ezra on the 10th of Tevis. Okay. The men of the Great Assembly numbered 120. <clears throat> but interestingly, when one would pass away, they did not appoint another in his place. So it was a body of tzaddikim and rabbanim that shrunk with time, obviously, until there was one left. And who was the last standing member of the Anshik Nessus Hagdola? And here it becomes, the next part of the shir is easier to follow and remember because it's Pirkei Avos. Um, one of you mentioned that Pirkei Avos does a great job of following, tracing the rabbinic dynasty in a certain era. And that's where we are now. Because, if you remember, the first Mishnah of Pirkei Avos reads something like this. It says, Moshe received the Torah from Sinai and gave it over to Yehoshua. Right? Yehoshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to Anshik Nessus Hagdol. So what we just did in 22 steps, the Mishnah does in five. Because <clears throat> the Mishnah skipped all the names. Moshe, Yehoshua, elders, prophets, men of the Great Assembly. So we've been tracing who are those elders and who are those prophets all the way till the men of the Great Assembly. So we spent a few classes on getting from Moshe to the men of the Great Assembly. But now that we're here, really the next best step would be, I'm not going to do it today because we didn't do it before the class, but for next week, it would be good to have a sitter with a Pirkei Avos and we're going to help that trace the next steps of leadership of the Jewish people, because now it's already the Mishnah. Interest See, the Mishnah wasn't so much interested in going through the prophets with us, because for that we have the books of the prophets. Right? For that you look in the Nevi'im. But the Mishnah is going to tell us the sages of the Mishnah and how that leads up through the next few hundred years. Okay? So, in the second Mishnah of Pirkei Avos, it says, who's the last person in the Anshik Nesak? Dola, the Mishnah begins, Shimon HaTzadik, Haya Mishiyare Anshik Nesak Dola. Shimon the Tzadik was from the leftovers, that's the literal word in Hebrew, the, the last one standing, of the Anshik Nesak Dola. Shimon HaTzadik was a, was a, um, a tremendous, was a tremendous Tzadik. <laughs> He's called Shimon HaTzadik. Um, and he was also a Kohen. He is number 23. Yes, exactly. He is number 23. And Shimon was the Kohen, Kohen Gadol of his time. <coughs> Many great, beautiful stories about Shimon Atzadik. And there's the most famous one, which is when he played an extremely 
pivotal role, and a tremendous miracle happened through him. And that is, it's somehow a miracle that people don't realize how important it is. What happens is like this, just a drop of historical background. The Persians allowed the building of the second base of Mikdash. The second base of Mikdash is going to be built. 34 <coughs> years after the second base of Mikdash is built, Persia falls. Two, who's the next ones on the block? Who's the next superpower? Is going to be the Greeks. But it doesn't, the Greeks don't start being Greek. They start with being the Macedonians. And the conqueror at the time is Alexander the Great. Or Alexander Macedonian. Who, that's the same person. He comes from a place called Macedonia. He's called Alexander the Great. In the Gemara, he's always called Alexander Mokdon. Mokdon is Macedonian. Um, and he is great in, in world history as one of the great conquerors of all time. And Alexander the Great um, vanquishes the Persian Empire. And he takes over. And he becomes the, the big conqueror. So basically, if we're following, um, the, there was the Assyr Assyrians. If we go back a few hundred years, there was the Assyrians. They were the ones who exiled the ten tribes. They were led by Sancheirev. The Assyrians fell to the Babylonians. The Babylonians fell to the Persians. And the Persians are going to fall to the Macedonians slash Greeks. Right? I'm not trying to give a history class, but this is just, this is the facts of the time. So, 30, I think this is 34 years after the second, uh, after the second place this is built, Alexander the Great now becomes the ruling empire, or emperor. And he sets out on a march against Yerushalayim, the Jewish people. Um, the Jewish people had many enemies, and the enemies told Alexander that the Jews were with the Persians against you. And they weren't entirely wrong, because the Jews, the Persians were good to the Jews. They had they let them build the second base of Mikdash. So the Jews didn't fight in the Persian armies, but the, the Persians were there. It was like, you know, you live in the country and they were good to you. So the Jews supported the Persians. So now that Alexander the Great is the new leader on the block, so the enemies of the Jewish people find favor with Alexander and they talk to him against the Beis HaMikdash and this, and Alexander decrees the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. And again, that's, this is a point that many people don't realize, that the second Beis HaMikdash could very easily have lasted for only 34 years. Because Alexander was the leader, and he was the emperor, and he was a world power, and he decreed its destruction. And he himself marched on Yerushalayim. There was, there was really no hope. And Shimon HaTzadik puts on the big day Kohen Gadol, the garments of the Kohen Gadol, takes out the Sefer Torah, walks out of the Beis HaMikdash, surrounded by the elders of the Jewish people, and they approach Alexander as he is riding into Yerushalayim. And here is where the story is related, definitely in Gemara and in Medrash, and I don't know about secular sources, but when Alexander sees them, he gets off his mount, his big steed or whatever, and he bows to Shimon Atzadeh. And Alexander's generals, this is the emperor, this is the, the conqueror of you know, the civilized world. Why is he bowing to the Jewish tzaddik? So they ask him, Alexander, you know, your majesty. He says, how can I not bow to this person whenever I go out to war, to battle, an image of his likeness is what I see in front of me. 
And that and he leads me to victory in my battles. Now when I see him in real flesh, how can I not bow? And basically, this and th- that saved that changed the day in a minute. Everything changed. Here they were decreed that Beis Hamikdash was going to be destroyed. Instead, Alexander bows to the to Shimon Atzadik, and then Shimon Atzadik takes him into the Beis Hamikdash, and he's he's very very impressed by the Beis Hamikdash. Um, interestingly, at that point. Um, Alexander is so impressed, he says, you know, I want you to erect a statue of me in the base of Mikdash. <laughs> that was his way of showing his love for them, you know, so he's going to allow them to erect a statue of the base of Mikdash. Now, now <laughs> that's called being in a pickle. Like, what are you going to say? You know, you can't, you know, he might be in a good mood right now, in a second, the whole thing can be over. So, and I don't know if it was Shimon Asadik or one of the other Chachamim who gently explained that that's, that could be, you know, halachically problematic, but they immediately offered him two gifts in the place of that statue. They said that those two gifts will be much greater gifts than a statue. One is that every Jewish boy born this year will be named Alexander in honor and deference to Alexander. And that's when Alexander became a Jewish name. Mm-hmm. Right? Today there's Alexanders or Alex or Sender or whatever. It's all Alexander. There's many Alexanders. And Alexander is not initially a Torah name. It's a Greek name. Um, but that's where it came from. That's the first thing. And the second thing he said is that every Jewish document is dated. And normally the, our dates are to Briyasa Olam, to creation. From now on, we're going to date them to the reign of Alexander the Great. So uh, a ksuva or a get or a star, mechira, any type of a star, any type of a document will carry the date. The date will be not to creation, but to the reign of Alexander the Great. But interestingly, and it's another one of those interesting things, he says that's gonna, that, was, that started six years after Alexander's reign began, which was exactly, and I'm not going to go through the, the Cheshbonus, exactly 1,000 years to Matan Torah. So whenever it had a year of Alexander the Great, the Jews knew, and that's 1,000 years to Matan Torah. So it, had a, it had a Jewish equivalence as well. Mm-hmm. But those are the two gifts that they offered Alexander. Alexander accepted them, and that created, Alexander was very good to the Jews after that. I mean, well, depends where and when, but <laughs> he didn't destroy the Holy Temple. That's a, that's a good thing. Um, Rabbi, Rabbi um, so with how, how long did the Anshaykh Nessus last? Like from, when it, from Ezra to Shimon? How many years was it? It's a good question, and I don't know the answer. It's also, I don't know when it exactly it started. I don't know if it was like so one say, day when it fully started. Because you were saying about how each time some of them passed right. away, they didn't I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so because some of the people in Yashiknesagdola were very old at, at at its beginning. You know, by you had people who were still still remember the first base Amikdash. So they were, you know, 70 plus when it started. So it's very likely that the Yashiknesagdola includes people that passed away right at the beginning and others that 30, 40, 50 years later. Um, I don't have an exact number on that. I don't know if there is an exact number because I don't know if there's an official day where it started, so to speak. It sort of, it, it came together, it came to become a body. Um, so I don't know. I don't know exactly. I, I would say for sure less than 100 years. Less than. I, I think so, yeah. Anyhow, so this, this that Alexander was good to the Jewish people was good. But like every good thing, has its negative side to it also, because this really laid the groundwork for assimilation. And that's, that, this is going to lead up to the story of Hanukkah, where Jews and Greeks, there's so many Hellenists, and suddenly we're best friends. 
So being best friends with the goyim has its uh, downfalls, big downfalls. And very soon after this story, we have when the Greek emperor after Alexander has the Torah um, translated into Greek. What's that? That's called, I think, is a Greek name for it. The Septa. Septuagint. Something like that. Septaginta or something. Yeah. Yeah. The Greeks. The Greeks were the Yershim. They're the ears to the Macedonians. They're Eniklach. They're the ears. The the of the of the ears. Yeah. Of the Macedonians. Um, exactly who's who, I don't remember, but I think he had two grandchildren and they split up, but, but it's, it's uh, straight from, the Greeks come from the Macedonians. Um, which, again, we're going to stay away from the history and stick with our uh, Chachamim, but that explains something interesting. The next person on our list of Chachamim, which is number 24, which is the next Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, is Antignos Ish Soho. Antignos is also not a regular Hebrew name. Antigones, that's, that's Greek. Yeah. Right, because that time, that happened. That happened very quickly. The, the mixing of the cultures. Um, and he was a tzaddik. You know, Antigonus, he was the next leader of the Jewish people. But somehow the Jews and the Greeks very quickly um, became pretty um, friendly. Maybe too friendly in some cases. Um, you have to understand, the Greeks were also great philosophers. You know, Aristotle and all that. And they enjoyed Torah. And the Jews enjoyed their um, you know, philosophies. It's intelligent people and smart people and they're sophisticated people. Um, and you know, in, in the Hanukkah story, this is a big part of the story. Mm-hmm. That was all about Kedusha versus secularisms and, um, and, and assimilation. The Hanukkah story was really a story about assimilation <coughs> um, of the Jewish people. You know, the, it, you know, the way we tell a story to kids, it's you know, the, the Yidin against the Goyim. The Hanukkah story was as much Yidin against Yidin. Because there was as many Yidin with the Goyim as there were with the, with the Yidin. That was, and that was all product of that time. So again, it was a tremendous miracle when Alexander the Great didn't destroy the Vesamikdash. But on the other hand, it led right into what was, going, what was coming. And that's going to be the story of the Jewish people for the next couple hundred years under Greek rule. Maybe 250 years. Um, until the Romans are going to take over. Not great friends either. Um, so, number 23 on the list is going to be Antignos Ish Soho. 24, I'm sorry, and thank you. Right, right, Shimon was not 23. Number 24 is Antignos Ish Soho. Um, and he is the link after Shimon, who is the last of the Anshik Nessus Hagdola. Um, at that time, there actually was a tremendous... Um, rebellion, if you will, against the whole oral tradition. Because throughout history, there's been many people who have uh, veered off from our tradition, of the oral tradition. And one of the big tainas, one of the big complaints always is, oh, the oral tradition, who knows if it's true? Now, you know, throughout the generations, there are people who have gone, who have veered away from Torah ways, and one of their big official claims is that, you know, that they question the oral tradition. Um, none of these factions ever have kept the written tradition either. But the, the thing to say was that we don't like the oral tradition. Right? And ultimately, they didn't keep Shabbos in any form, not written and not oral. Because if you don't have an oral tradition, you don't really have a Torah that, that can be understood. But that was always a big thing. Perhaps the earliest and most famous in the early times of the, of a faction of the Jewish people that officially 
said we're not accepting the oral tradition was the Sadducees or the Tzedokim. The Tzedokim. The Sadducees. So in Hebrew they're called the Tzedokim and the Baitusim. I don't know how Baitusim is said in English. Um, the one that the name that's more famous is the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees was started by a person named Tzadok. There was actually two people. One was Tzadok and one was Baitus. And they started this faction called the Tzedokim, the Baitusim, who didn't, would not accept the rabbinical authorities, would not accept the rabbinical teachings. Um, and they became the early Hellenists who worked with the Greeks. Now, Tzadok and Baitos were disciples of Antignos Yusoch. This number 24, they were actually his disciples. Um, and interestingly, and it's hard for us to understand this, but one of their, um, one of their uh, platforms that they came and said was the following. What does Antignos say in Pirkei Avos? He's, he's famous for the statement. He says, don't serve Hashem for reward. Don't be like servants who just serve in order to receive a reward. Again, this is got to be Mishnah Gimel or Dalit, I don't recall, of Pirkei Avos. And he says, don't serve Hashem in order to get reward. So these two guys, Tzadok and Baitos, come, come to the Jewish people or their followers and they say, see, they don't believe in reward and punishment. You know, Yiddish guy doesn't really have reward, doesn't have punishment, because see, he even said, don't serve Hashem for reward. So they, they um, misinterpreted it, saying that he was saying there is no reward. And obviously, you know, that's not what he said. He didn't say there's no reward. He says, don't only serve for reward. Our, our service to Hashem should be beyond just, you know, what am I getting for it? You know, it's not uh, we shouldn't be like a little child that is only for if you give me a lollipop. It's uh, to serve Hashem because we love Hashem because we want to serve Hashem. So that's all the, what they were saying. But this Sadak and Baitos, who were obviously rabble rousers and trying to uh, veer away from the ways of Torah, that was one of their early platforms. And somehow they used that to go against the Orthodox tradition altogether, um, and and that became one of the very difficult thorns in the side of the Jewish people. And again, I'm going to say that period of time throughout the Second Holy Temple was a terrible time for the Jewish people between themselves. There was so many um, Jews that veered off and became very, very antagonistic. And we'll see soon, that's really when early Christianity begins also. And the early Christians were all Jews also. They're all Jewish people. It was all just different, you know, not accepting the Chachamim and not accepting what they were told. And they, they veered off into different religions. And what typically happens, all these different factions ultimately veer totally away so that they're not called Jews anymore. You know, the early Christians didn't see themselves as a new religion. They saw themselves as Jews, you know, plus. You know, that is, you know today, today, the test of time, nobody thinks that they're Jewish if they're Christian. It's a different, different religion altogether. But all those early factions were just Jews, just in a different way. And that carried the Jewish...